Hello, and welcome to the Travel and Transformation Show with me, your host, Sophia, and my guest today, Shane. So Shane is a certified ADHD life relationship and career coach and founder of Creating Order from Chaos, empowering ADHD coaching and consultation business. Shane's mission is to guide neurodivergent individuals on their unique journeys through their lives and relationships. Thank you so much for being with me today, Shane. I really appreciate it. And I know this is going to be an awesome conversation that my audience is just going to love. Thank you for having me on. I really appreciate it. Oh, you're so welcome. So first of all, can you tell us just a little bit about yourself and how you actually got into this coaching? And then, of course, there are, there are questions that I'm going to ask that were not actually in your intro. So surprise, everyone. Wait until you get there. <laughs> yeah, I got into my coaching business a few years ago because uh, in 2016, I had a mental breakdown and it was really difficult for me. I had gotten to a point of burnout with the work that I was doing and I ignored it. I ignored the, the, the breakdown that I had and I kept trying to push forward in 2018. My body just said, no, we're done. Mm. And I wound up developing fibromyalgia. Wow. And that was really hard. I was bedridden for a few months. I was definitely out of work at this point because my job just could not as awesome as my job was, it would not, be able to put up with that much of me missing work mm -hmm. and they did their best by giving me accommodations and working from home but my body had just had enough and my mind had it well or as well and I was kind of lost I didn't know what to do I needed to be a provider right that's what we're told as men is we're supposed to be, be providers right and as a good old southern boy that's my world and I struggled but in Late 2018, my wife told, tells me, hey, Merry Christmas. We're having babies. Well, we're having a baby, you know. And then in January 2019, we found out we were having twins. And the pressure started hitting me. Mm. But my wife is amazing. She sat me down. She said, you've got to stop. You're going to be an amazing dad. And you get to be a stay-at-home dad. Because we had done all the research and childcare was so expensive. Right. And as we kind of moved forward, she kept encouraging me to be a stay at home dad. After a while, I started feeling a lot better though. And I, I'd been getting the rest that I needed. And I'd actually been really putting in place a lot of really good therapy sessions and the other things. And I started wanting to do something, but I couldn't work a normal job. I couldn't go into an office or anything like that because it would trigger me. And so after a while, I working with a coach myself, I started developing my own business. And because I have ADHD, my business, Creating Order from Chaos, is a blanket company, which allows me to do all of the things that I enjoy doing. So project management, website development, ADHD life and relationship coaching, working with individuals on their careers leadership training, public speaking, podcasting, I get to do everything. And so that's kind of where I got into. And so now I've been doing it for a few years and I've been really helping a lot of people 
both with ADHD and in their relationships and in developing and understanding about why they may not be built for monogamy. And because I'm not built for monogamy and I, the classical ADHD symptoms of bouncing from relationship to relationship to relationship because we get bored easily. And if the person that we're with isn't willing to evolve with us, which is not everyone, not everybody has that, that ability, right. then we start sabotaging the relationship. Or we masked, masked so hard at the beginning that after a while, they look at the relationship and are like, you're not the person I fell in love with. Right. And that drastic change from who I pretended to be because that's what I thought you wanted because I read your profile and I saw the perfect man and I molded myself into that perfect man because I was so scared of being alone Mm. that I would do anything to be in a relationship, not in a malicious intentional way, but in a, I'm desperate to be with somebody who cares about me and loves me. Right. And that's where a lot of my relationships fell into place. And, um, But after a while, uh, after an abusive marriage to my first wife, I said, I'm just going to be who I am and I'm going to be okay with that. And I met my second wife and she's amazing. She's always been there for us. She's been an amazing mom. She's been an amazing wife. And a few months after our, you know, we started dating we were listening to Dan Savage's love cast and he started talking about ethical non-monogamy and it flipped the switch, not just for me, but for her as well. Wow. Okay. Well, that actually does, um, is a perfect segue into my question of what is ethical non-monogamy? Because I think a lot of people have heard the term and Different people use it different ways. So what is your explanation of it? So my explanation is literally the dictionary term. But an ethical non-monogamy relationship is a relationship that's built on the understanding that people have different needs. And not every single person in a relationship can meet 100% of the needs that the other person has. Mm-hmm. In order to stop, to not cheat, to not break the trust of the person that they're with, they develop a relationship style that meets those needs that they have, but they do it in a way that's ethical, where both people are informed and they are giving their enthusiastic consent in the relationship. And there's different types. Um, Polyamory is the concept that a person can love more than one person. Mm-hmm. And they can develop different relationship styles to meet certain needs that they have in a relationship. So, like, if a person has certain um, emotional needs and the other person's not really able to give them, but all of the rest of the relationship is uh, there, why destroy the relationship over a small part of the issue, right? Some mm-hmm. people have kinks that they want to fulfill or mm-hmm. need to fulfill. Right. and. One person can, and the other person is very hesitant about that. So they develop a relationship that's outside of the normal, you know, paradigm. Um, Some people 
need to have a sexual relationship when they go out of town. So they have a don't ask, don't tell type of, uh, type of relationship where the partner knows, but they don't talk about it. Right. So basically it sounds like the way to really have an ethically non-monogamous relationship is number one, to communicate mm-hmm. and two, to have agreements and three, to have boundaries in place so that each person knows what the terms that they're using mean, you know, mm-hmm. so. Absolutely. So you can do A, B, and C, but D is off the table. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and then both parties understand what D is. Mm-hmm. So maybe it's, I don't know, you can't spend the night with another person. You can do this, but you can't spend the night. Right. Or Now, well, I do real quick caveat on that. There are a number of people out there where they believe that the one person does not have the right for dictating the other person's relationships. And that's like a very firm relationship, you know, style that's not meant for everyone, but Mm -hmm. it is valid for those people. And so it's very important to understand like who you're talking to and why you have those boundaries. And if they are those boundaries, that person may say, you don't get to dictate who and what I, who I can date and what I can do. And, you know, it's very, very tricky whenever it comes to that. That's why communication is so key and why boundaries have to be put in place. Because if you can't enthusiastically give that consent that you don't, get to know or you don't get any input then that's yeah that's a payment of uh, a mission you have to see if you're willing to put forward right and i think that that kind of works with any relationship that you're in because well communication is key in any relationship as far as i'm concerned because if you can't communicate then there's going to be some kind of misunderstanding there's going to be some mm-hmm. kind of fight there's going to be something that throws the relationship out of balance. So communication is definitely key. And both people need to be able to have adult conversations, even if they're hard conversations. So I think that's across the board with relationships regardless. Mm-hmm. And and I think also that in traditional relationships, people probably don't speak about things as much as they should because they don't necessarily always have consent or boundaries around certain things until a boundary is crossed. And then do they both realize that, oh, there was a boundary and I crossed it. So (laughs) one of the questions that I do have is like, why do you think that some people opt for this lifestyle of non-traditional relationship versus being in a traditional relationship because i know you did say everybody's not built for Mm -hmm. monogamy right there's a number of reasons yeah there's a number of reasons out there as to why people choose to have this kind of lifestyle some people don't even feel like it's a choice they just feel that this is their life this is who they are some people have hypersexuality some people have asexuality where they either love sex so much that they cannot find a singular person who can keep up with them or they don't enjoy sex but their partner does and so they're trying to 
bridge that gap mm. and make sure that their partner is getting the, the things that they need. I actually had a couple of clients that was a problem. You know, one uh, the husband was asexual and the other the other husband was hypersexual, but everything about their relationship meshed except for this thing. And so they had to develop a system around themselves where the hypersexual husband could go out and find people and enjoy themselves mm-hmm. and have fun and give the asexual the intimacy that he needed without the pressure of sex. Right. And, you know, some people get into it because they saw their father or their mother cheating constantly or you know, going from person to person and they just see the, they don't feel that they should have to be monogamous. Right. Mm-hmm. And, you know, some people just have, you know, I said it earlier, but they have kinks that they need to get met because if they don't, that means they're having to repress, repress them. Some people are gay or bisexual or, you know, pansexual and they, they have, they want to be in relationships with other people. Right. And so they develop a more open style of a relationship system that works for them. So, well, I'm just going to have to throw my you know, two to 10 cents in here. So, <laughs> because I also believe that honesty is the key. Mm-hmm. And like, if you are somebody who has kinks or if you are somebody who's into polyamory, that you owe it to whoever you choose to be your primary person to let them know up front, but then understand that if that person isn't into it, don't be selfish and let them go and go and find people who actually match what you're looking for instead of trying to fit that square peg into a round hole or not, or like you had said in the beginning, You know, you were completely lying and masking who you were because you're looking for love, but then at the same time realizing I'm not being feared myself or the other person because I'm not presenting who I really am. And I think even, again, in traditional relationships, so I'm going to have to throw it out for all relationships, you have to be who you are (laughs) because eventually your representative is going to step out of the room. And the real you is going to show up anyway. So, you know, it just doesn't make sense trying to mold yourself into being somebody that you believe another person wants and then be like, surprise, here's the real me. Here's really what I want. And can you fit into that? You know, and meanwhile, I, you know, the person's like three months in, a year in, three years in, and all of a sudden, 25 years in, (laughs) you know, it's like, did I waste my life? Did I waste my time? Was this whole thing a lie? And I think that's traumatic to -hmm. the other person, you know, but that leads me to a question because I know you've listed some of the reasons why somebody might choose an ethical non- an ethical non-monogamous relationship, but say that 10 times fast. (laughs) And so like, I've heard some people say that these relationships are born from trauma or a person's afraid of being hurt. So they're not really wanting to commit to one person or they're not wanting to give all of themselves to one person. So what are your thoughts on that? 
So one of the things that we see there, all relationships have trauma issues. Right. They all do. Right. Masking is a trauma response. And it's important to understand that because when we look at why people mask, and and I'm going to go into my specialty here, ADHD people, we learn very early on that we are not the standard person. We're not the person who can go into a, a crowd of neurotypical people and fit in well. So as people with ADHD, we learn very early on that we don't fit into the social structure around us. We don't, even if, especially if there's autism involved, we don't understand neurotypical people. Mm -hmm. We develop at a slower rate through different parts of our brain. So socially, cognitively, uh, behaviorally, we, we, any combination of those three things, we develop slower. Okay. And so when we're like 10 years old and we're trying to hang out with other 10 year olds, we don't fit in with them. And there's a lot of pressure there because we're supposed to, our parents tell us we're supposed to, or teachers tell us we're supposed to, or peers tell us we're supposed to. Why do you play with dolls? Because I'm still technically speaking eight or six years old in my brain. Right. And so we learn very early on we have to mask so that we can fit in and be accepted by people because if we don't, so can mm-hmm. I just ask a question? Sorry to interrupt. Mm-hmm. So when you say mask, you're t- really talking about putting on a mask for other people and masking who you are. Yeah. Is that correct? Yeah. Okay. Carry on. So, <laughs> so that masking is we are taking the various things that we've been taught in social media or on cartoons or TV shows or books that we've read. And we build a persona that is safe for us to use in various situations. Now, what this means is, is every time we meet a new person, we kind of adjust ourselves to that person's expectations of who we're supposed to be at whatever given age. Mm -hmm. This follows us through because we learn to do it so as much as we can so that we will be socially acceptable into our adulthood. And when we start to date people, because we know that this has worked so well for us in the past, we continue to do it. And so we get into a relationship. We are doing our best to be this persona that fits their criteria. And as we get into that, we get, go further and further into it. When we get to a point where we think we can actually trust you, then we relax and we start to be ourselves. But again, like you said earlier, that person may not have been ready for that. Especially right. if it's neurodivergence, like ADHD, autism, you know, trauma issues. Like that person may not be set up or able to put up with the being distracted, the going from job to job, the struggle with basic, seemingly basic, you know, cleaning and day to day self care and things of the, along those lines. And if that person's not ready for it, now the relationship implodes. Right. Right. If you've been doing like different kinks or something like that, and you were actually hurting yourself because you were doing those things, even though you had trauma from having issues like that and violence or something like that from your childhood, then you're, you're causing harm to yourselves. And one of the reasons why part of my business is relationship coaching is so that people with ADHD or autism 
are able to understand why authenticity is so important Mm. and how to put yourself out there where you're being authentically who you are, but then putting in place boundaries from who you actually are with ADHD and autism, because these aren't things that are broken about us. These are things that we live. This this is how our brains work naturally. Mm -hmm. And it's not conducive to the world around us. And that's why there's a lot of people out there who are LGBT, who also have ADHD or on the autism spectrum. There's 30% uh, 30 more likely if you have some sort of LGBT that you also have some sort of ADHD or autism. Interesting. Now, I didn't know that. Is there like a study or something? I'm not asking you to cite stuff right now, but are there studies out there that actually show the correlation? Mm Mm-hmm. And there's and it's a pretty strong correlation. Now again, it's not causation. I don't want people to sit here and say, "Oh, if I'm gay, I'm going to have ADHD." No, but the correlation between the two is there, and the hypothesis behind it is because they are already naturally not built to sit in the status quo of the people around them because of neurodivergence. Mm-hmm. They are more open to having alternative styles of relationships, or having lifestyles, or other things like that that are more natural for themselves. They're naturally able to allow themselves to be attracted to men and women. They're naturally able to allow themselves to be more of who they are as far as like being, you know, um, attracted to honestly everyone, right? Mm -hmm. Um, Like I don't put any kind of stock into gender when it comes to uh, uh, sex. If I'm attracted to the person, I'm attracted to the person. I don't care. Mm -hmm. And you know, so that kind of puts me under the umbrella of pansexuality. Now, am I mostly attracted to uh, women? Yes, but I don't hold myself to that. Right. Because there's 8 billion people in the world and I, I care about who I care about and I enjoy being around people I care about. And I have, I love intimacy and I love having fun with people and I love exploring new things and seeing where that goes. And that's just who I am. And I think that's really cool that you're able to know that about yourself, because I think regardless of the type of relationship that you're in or the type of relationship that you're seeking, if you're constantly masking, I think at some point you forget who you are Mm -hmm. and you have to rediscover who you are so that you can be authentic, so you can be vulnerable, so you can have that in that genuine intimacy with another person, because I think, and it's my thought, so I'm allowed, (laughs) when you aren't true to yourself and you don't, or you don't know yourself, you can't truly be intimate with another person because you're not truly being intimate with yourself. Yeah. And Again, the reason why I focus on ADHD and and autism in my practice is because we didn't actually learn how to. Right. Again, remember, go back to that whole neurodevelopmental stage, right? Right. From four to 12 years old. We are two to four years behind the curve. And so we're not meeting the expectations of our parents or the teachers or our peers of how we're supposed to be able to learn things, how we're supposed to act in a social setting how we're supposed to do things around the house. We're not meeting those expectations. And we're actually also not able to meet them because we we're not there yet. 
Right. We're developing at a slower rate. That doesn't, and by the way, this does not mean we're stupid. It doesn't mean that we're mentally challenged. It means we're not there yet. Right. We are we are behind that curve. If you look at a developmental as a bell curve, we're on the lower end of it. It doesn't mean we're stupid though. It just means that we develop at a different rate in different parts of our brain. Mm-hmm. And so when somebody's trying to teach us how to be a man, right? father trying to teach the boy how to be a man we may not be ready for that that conversation and then of course the father may have some toxic male uh, traits or the mother may have some toxic uh, traits about herself where Mm -hmm. she starts to put a lot of pressure on the boy she starts to put a lot of pressure on the uh, girl the father puts a lot of pressure on the girl on what she's supposed to be especially if there's a strong religious background Mm-hmm. you know, and different cultural backgrounds, they put that pressure on the children to meet these expectations that we're not able to at that point. And, and the that next thing that we so start, much sense. Right. And the next thing that happens is that people start giving us negative feedback about who we are. Right. Instead of us being able to learn who we are along the lines of like being accepted, being loved, being cherished. Mm-hmm. We're developing an understanding of ourselves based on the negativity around us. The average ADHD or neurodivergent person gets 20,000 more negative uh, criticisms leveled against them by the age of 10 than a neurotypical child. That is nuts. So 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 we develop a personality that's based on the negativity that we've heard about ourselves all of our lives. And we develop imposter syndrome. And that follows us through everything. Wow. See, now that's information that I don't know that's out there because it doesn't seem like it's it's generalized information. So do you also coach not only the person with ADHD, but their partner so that they can understand? And do you even go into coaching parents of children with ADHD so they can understand what their kids are going through? Because it's really interesting that I'm sure ADHD has been around forever, but it just seems like now, like I don't know, every other kid is being diagnosed with ADHD. And sometimes I wonder if people are quick to diagnose them with ADHD based on behavior or if it's really growing or, you know, or if there are some people who are actually slipping through the cracks and they're not getting diagnosed so i mean it's such a mixed bag what what are your thoughts on that so there's different schools of thought so adhd has been around has been known scientifically speaking since the 1700s however there are theories out there that adhd is a part of the hunter-gatherer society prefer you know um so there's the hunter-gatherer society and then there was the agricultural society that came about Whenever you look at the different traits of people who have ADHD or autism, they fit into that hunter-gatherer section, Ooh. right? They, you know, when it comes to hunting, you have to be very focused on the hunt. You have to be able to maintain a like severe hyper focus on the the situation that you're in. You have to be very aware of the world around you, and that those are all those are all traits that people with ADHD have, and we see everything so like when we see a project or if we are kind of walking down the road we're seeing the little thing right there we're seeing the little thing right there we're seeing the little thing right there we're seeing the shiny thing right there and so that that lack of like laser focus 
is us having the ability to observe the world around us in a broader sense. Mm-hmm. And when we look at a relationship, we don't just see like this one aspect of that person and focus on it. We see the pot- potential of having a relationship with that person and a relationship with that person. So like, we also see the grass is greener on the other side kind of thing. And we get distracted by other people. We get, you know, and of course we get bored if we're stuck in a situation where we are essentially starting to stagnate. Mm. We get to that point faster than other people. And so when we start to look at the other aspects of ADHD and, and why is it, why does it seem like it's there's more and more people getting ADHD and what we actually see is the numbers are starting to match in adults to what we have in children. Mm. So the CDC out there says that most children between you know 9 and 11% of children have some form of ADHD or and then it's like something like another 20% to have some sort of autism mm. anywhere on either one of those spectrums. But somehow magically speaking throughout our childhood that number drops to 5 to 3% for men and women adults. Oh okay. So is did that they... Oh go ahead. Sorry. Did did the ADHD and autism go away? No, because we know for a fact, because the brain is slightly different in the, in these two um, um, demographics, it couldn't have gone away. Right. And we know that our education system and our parenting system isn't structured around neurodivergence and understanding neurodiversity. So what happened? They started masking. They started hiding who they were. Mm. They started trying to not admit that they have ADHD because if they do, there's the stigma around it. Right. Same thing goes for autism. And so that's why we're starting to see it because more and more people as adults are starting to recognize that they still have or st- had ADHD, but were never treated or they still have ADHD because the, the doctors at the time said, Oh, you'll grow out of it. In fact, doctors even now say you can't have ADHD because you didn't have it as a kid or you can't have ADHD because you had it as a kid and, and people grow out of it. There's still psychiatrists now that have that mindset. Oh, that's interesting. So. And meanwhile, you're having a lived experience that no, no, I still have it. Yeah. <laughs> so how, if you could give tips to somebody with ADHD or somebody who really does maybe not even realize that they have it because they were never diagnosed with it at, and they're an adult how do you maintain like what are some tips for maintaining friendships and and relationships just in general because if you're getting bored or if you're like oh out of sight out of mind i haven't called this person in how long because i'm not really thinking about them how do you maintain these friendships because obviously if nobody knows and you have the friend on the other side and it's like, okay, this person never calls me. Why am I always the one calling them? And then, you know, it's like, well, maybe it's just a one-sided friendship and they stop calling because not realizing that maybe there's something else going on. So I know that was very long-winded. So no, no, but, <laughs> but it's all relevant. So the first thing is, is you have to learn to be authentically who you are and you have to be okay with that. You have to be okay with who you are. You have to accept yourself. You have to love yourself. You said it earlier. That's exactly what we still have to be. As an adult, we may have to relearn what that means. That's where coaches and therapists come into play. 
is, you know, therapists help with the emotional understanding and the in processing and learning how our brains work in the, you know, the feelings kind of way. Coaches come into play whenever it's the practical application of what you're learning from therapists. How do I do this? Because therapists don't really work on the how. They just right. work on the let's dig into you and let's open up all of that stuff. And then coaches come in and we say, okay, you started learning who you are. Let's find out what your values are. Let's figure out what your strengths are. Let's figure out what your relationship style is. Let's talk about how, what are your love languages? Right. Because as people with ADHD, we may have different love languages. Right. There's one that I love. It's called uh, penguin pebbling. It's called we what? love penguin pebbling. You know, penguin a penguin. Pebbling. Yeah. A, ping, a male penguin brings a rock to a girl, a uh, female penguin. Okay. And if she likes it, he, she likes him. We, we think about these little, little toys or um, poems or creative things or different, um, like, one of my favorite things is getting my wife like random crafting uh, tools because she just, she crafts all the time. And I see something, I'm like, ooh, shiny. Oop, I'm going to get it for her. Mm. And that's me penguin pebbling. But understanding that there's different neurodivergent uh, love languages and understanding that there's, you know, the, also the other love languages that are out there. Um, you know, I can't think of the doctor's name, but he put it out there a few years ago. And what are our love languages? How do we communicate those things? And once we understand those things about ourselves, we put ourselves out there in the world and we learn how to communicate those to the people around us. We authentically put ourselves in that world and the people who want, who enjoy that and are willing to be your friend will be your friend. You just have to put yourself out there in the world. The people who will enjoy being in a relationship, romantically speaking, sexually speaking or anything along those lines, they will enjoy your quirks and your humor and things of that nature. Cause they, they that's what they're looking for. That's who they are attracted to, but you have to put yourself out there. And you have to understand relationships, successful relationships, are not the ones that last for 50 years, right? A successful relationship is one that lasts for as long as it lasts, where both people enjoy it and walk away from it being better people. So if I'm in a relationship for 60 years and when we die, I walk away from it better, or she walks away from it better, amazing. If it's two nights... If we had fun and we walked away with fond memories and it's a good time, it was a successful relationship. And that is very interesting because I've never heard anybody put it that way because I think within society, we're ingrained with a thought of what a successful relationship is supposed to look like. And, you know, especially if, it's a monogamous relationship. And it's like, yeah, I want to be like my grandparents who were married for like 80 years. And, you know, I never saw them fight and this and that. And meanwhile, you know, it may not be that for you. But then again, when you look at all the different um, statistics on divorces, that's a whole other ball game right there because there's so much that goes into it it's like are you marrying the right person in the first place are you marrying for the right reason are you marrying just because you think you should be married you know because a lot of those relationships you're not walking out of them feeling like you've had any success right so i'm a gigantic nerd when it comes to this stuff so the average relationship that starts between 18 and 21 lasts for an average of eight years and ends in divorce. 
Ooh, and that number is statistically huge. I think it's like 67, 74% of those relationships will just end in divorce. We get into serious relationships too early. We're not emotionally mature enough for serious relationships. Mm-hmm. I have stressed this to my oldest daughter and my oldest son. Like, don't please just don't get married. Like when you hit 28, when you hit 30, that's when you start to think about marriage. Don't think about it whenever you're going to college and you're exploring the world and there's a thousand different people out there you can be in a relationship with. Because the person I am when I'm 18 is drastically different than the person I am when I'm 28. Right. This is true. And if the person I get into a marriage with when I'm 18 also is not the same person that I, uh, than they are when they're 28, did we grow together? Did we evolve together or did we grow apart? Right. And I mean, always the hope is that when you're with somebody, if that is your person, that you two continue to grow together in whatever way is best for you. But I have a question, like jumping back onto the um, ethical non-monogamy thing. In your experience, do you think it is easier for men than women to do this without jealousy? Oh, it's definitely easier for women. Really? Mm-hmm. I think now that's interesting because that's not that's not what I expected. <laughs> so there's multiple issues here, and there and I, and I love this question. It's such a good question because a lot of people have that min- mindset of oh, it must be. But men are taught, and especially men in the south men in rural areas um you always you also can think of african countries islam country islamic countries india you know men often grow up with a bias of ownership of women we live in a patriarchal society and what does that mean that means men sometimes have an unconscious or even conscious bias of this is mine Mm-hmm. And in some cultures, the women also have that same mentality of this person is mine. Uh, definitely in African-American culture and Hispanic cultures, we see that really strongly. But when it comes into people who are open to ethical non-monogamy, those people often, the women, have an easier time not having to deal with jealousy so much. Do they still deal with jealousy? Yes. However, they're much more in tune with their emotional side of things mm-hmm. and they can, they're much easier. They have a better time and ease of processing it in healthy ways. Men, however, have a feeling of ownership. We own this person, mm-hmm. right? And that's a very difficult mindset to get out of, even if we're the ones who want to be ethically non-monogamous because we want to be with other people. We're fine with us doing that, but mm, right because we're taught that women's vaginas get super loose to more men that she's with. Like, that's a huge thing that's taught to so many people. I'm like, no, that's literally not how that works because that's not how the vagina works. Like, <laughs> like, like, um, and like, there's so many different things. There's so many different stigmas. And if if a woman has uh, 50 sexual partners, she's a whore. But if a man has 50 sexual partners, he's a, a stud. Yes. Right. There's all these such little a double things standard. Are, right. It's such a double standard. And so what we have to understand is men struggle with the jealousy because we are also taught that we're not supposed to express our emotions. 
Mm. We're not supposed to talk about our emotions. We're not supposed to, you know, like be seen as weak. And if a woman is with other men, then the man who she's supposed to be with is weak. He's a cuckold. How often do we hear about cuckolds? Yeah, yeah. And there's such a stigma to that. However, you know, what a lot of people don't understand is whenever we look at people who are cuckolds or, you know, uh, females as well, that's actually the dominant side of the relationship. The man or the woman is giving the person the power to do what they want to do. Mm-hmm. And this is a, what a lot of people don't understand about BDSM. The submissive is the one that's in charge or should be in any kind of healthy BDSM relationship because the submissive has their safe word. And when they say their safe word, a good dom, a good domination, a good relationship will stop. Right. And that's the power of the submissive. Mm -hmm. And we're not taught that. Well, that's true because a lot of, and now we are going left. But a lot of people who are talking about, I want my woman to be submissive, don't actually understand what the term is. Well, in, I guess in that community, they, they talk about it, but they don't always understand what the term is, because I think a lot of people get two things mixed up with when they think about submission based on what they've learned in the Bible, perhaps, or in church, because I don't think the Bible actually says it like that, but. Oh, yeah, they do. But in church, they actually nail it in a certain way versus if you're in the community, it means something completely different. And I think people don't understand the difference. Yeah. The thing that people uh, mix up about the Bible is Paul says that women are to be submissive to the husbands and should be uh, not heard in the church. Right. That's the, that's Paul. Um, Jesus doesn't say that. Right. And there's, that's, that's the issues I have with uh, religion, by the way, is there's so many differences between like the Pauline new Testament and the, uh, um, the Jesus new Testament. The messages are actually different drastically. So Paul was a zealot and there's that's where a lot of the problems that we have in when it comes to marriage and LGBT and stuff like that is the differences between the two messages. And if you're throwing Old Testament in there, you're also throwing in a huge issue right there. Right. And so <laughs> and so that's where so much confusion. That's why there's so many denominations of churches and things along those lines. And sorry, we're way out in left field, y'all. Y'all are just gonna have to follow us around. Welcome to ADHD 101, y'all. Um, <laughs> um but anyways. But that that negative like like that criteria of what it means to be a man, if especially if it's in a kind of a religious uh, connotation or a cultural connotation, there's so many struggles that come back to the feeling that the man is supposed to be the dominant who's able to do whatever they want to to the woman right. in the relationship. But that's not what that means. Exactly. Exactly. And then I did hear you say um, in one of your other interviews that insecurities in a relationship manifest jealousy. Mm-hmm. And how do you, so my question is, and how do you overcome that? Because, you know, we are talking about jealousy and how, interestingly enough, that men struggle with it more in ethical non-monogamous relationships than women do. So insecurity breeds jealousy. 
And that comes from, for, and again, this, is, this circles back to men not being able to communicate effectively how they're feeling. Mm-hmm. And so they repress the feeling. And once they start repressing the feeling, any kind of, any kind of like negative sign, and they're looking for them, becomes a, a contentious issue. And the same thing happens to women. They, you know, they have a fear that, uh, you know, he's dating these blonde hair, blue eyes, and I have brown hair, brown eyes. Like, is that who he actually wants? Right. Or he's looking at her and he's like, he's, she's dating a whole bunch of black dudes. Is that what she's wanting? And so he starts to look at himself like, why are, why are they dating those people? Mm. And it's not me. Right. And so there's that, the insecurity starts to build up and they're not communicating it effectively that this is something that bothers him. Mm-hmm. Here's the thing. Maybe the girl does enjoy being with black guys because of that stereotype. Right. Mm-hmm. Maybe he is with that blonde hair, blue eyed girl because of that stereotype. The, the thing is, is that that's not important. Right. Mm-hmm. What's important is like, are they coming back and being with you? If you're in that type of relationship, are they, being the person that you need them to be are they fulfilling the needs that you need from them right and if they're still doing that and you're both communicating effectively and you're both putting out your boundaries and respecting the boundaries and able to sit down and say hey i'm really having a hard time with this relationship that you're in with this person because i don't really understand like what you're getting from them that you can't get from me that's normally these needs that i meet Right. Because that's the danger in a, a in a polyamorous or open relationship is maybe those they're the needs that you normally meet for that person are now being met by somebody else and you're starting to be left out. Right. And that's dangerous because mm-hmm. now what we're looking at is like, are you still in love with me? Right. And do you still need me in your life? And if the other person can't communicate effectively that no, this is a just new relationship energy and I'm just really getting a lot of cool things from this person. Or they're not communicating that actually, yeah, we are growing apart because I this person is much more in tune with who I am than you are. And we've grown too far apart. They don't right. communicate that. Instead, what happens is that festers. Mm-hmm. And once it starts festering, it starts becoming this wound in the relationship. And at some point, it's going to completely uh, dissolve into just anger, frustration, jealous rage, uh, abuse, you know, emotionally, mentally, physically abusive. Like, all of that's going to manifest within those relationships. And those are the relationships we see on Facebook where they implode and everybody just loses their mind. We don't see the successful polyamory <laughs> and ethical non-monogamous relationships on, on Facebook or anything like that. And so that's where a lot of the... Um, the negative connotation towards ethical non-monogamy comes from, by the way. Yeah, that, that actually, that makes a lot of sense because I have heard, um, cause I, I do know some people who are in these types of relationships. And so one person said for him, it's about, he doesn't feel the pressure to be the one person to meet all the needs of the other person. So he can just show up when it's, when it's his time do do him and then know that there are other people to pick up the slack. And then I I know another person who is into, um, well, po- 
Yeah, I guess they're both into polyamory. They're different types of relationships, but they're both into polyamory. And the other one, he said, you know, his other relationships don't diminish the relationship with his primary. Mm-hmm. That's a common one. Yeah. So, and I, and I, I really do think that is an interesting concept, but I don't think everybody, I don't think everybody's ready for that. <laughs> not everybody is. Like again, like way on the beginning of this, not everybody is cut out for polyamory, and not everybody is cut out for monogamy. You know, the thing that we everybody needs to understand is it needs to be okay. What matters is that you're being honest with the person that you're with, like you said earlier, and make sure that you're communicating your needs effectively, right. being you know, being like authentically who you are and expressing it early enough when you know it, because sometimes you don't know it. I didn't know it until three months into the relationship with my wife. Had no clue. Then I hear about it, and all of a sudden, my whole life makes more sense. Wow. Bouncing from person to person, because I got bored. My needs eventually didn't get met, or I was not able to meet the needs of that person, because I was too mentally exhausted from masking myself. That I just wasn't that thing. I don't care about sex. I'm going to overshare here, guys. Sorry about that. But this is how this is how the brain works. I don't care about sex. I enjoy it for four to five months. Eh, after that, it doesn't matter who I'm with. I'm technically labeled as a gray sexual, like where the new relationship energy lets me have sex with people for a, a, you know, for a little while. Mm-hmm. But after a while, regardless of whatever we put into the relationship, I'm kind of just done with it. It becomes an issue for me. And my wife actually had to evolve that kind of mindset to be okay with that now so is that she's still sexual oh sorry to interrupt but is that something that you told her up front so she knew it was coming or was that like oh surprise this is kind of how it works (laughs) kind of a combination that happened because i was also discovering myself at this point Mm. again once you know the things about yourself that's when you need to be as upfront about it as you possibly can, right? I didn't know I masked until I started learning about it when I was 38. But I've been in a relationship with my wife since I was 30. Oh, wow. Okay. So like, but once I like, but again, I had known that I was going to just be authentically who I was when I was 28, but I didn't know about ADHD. I didn't know about autism at that time. You know, I didn't start learning about that stuff until my oldest son started getting, I got diagnosed with it. And from there, I didn't really apply anything to myself until I was 34. And I wasn't diagnosed officially until I was 36. And I wasn't told I had autism until I was 39, 38. Wow. Wow. I just knew I was different. And I was upfront and honest about that. Mm-hmm. I just knew that I thought I had some, I eventually I just knew I had thought I had some ADHD things. In fact, when I told my wife, I walked in, I said, Hey, I think I, I think I have ADHD. And she was like, Oh honey, you didn't know. <laughs> and I'm like, no, I didn't know. How was I supposed to know? She was, I thought you knew. I'm like, how long have you known? So she's like, since I read your dating profile, my wife is a special needs teacher, by the way. Oh, okay. So, so like and i was like so she knew like, she knew what she was signing right, up for right and so like this is three years in a relationship before i started really figuring this shit out and i'm like why didn't you say something she's like, i just thought you were being a dude about it and just not talking about it and i'm like uh okay well crap <laughs> like <laughs> but again 
it wasn't until later on as I started really getting hyperfocused into ADHD and understanding neurodivergence that I started understanding what masking was. And when I saw that, my mind reeled for years on that one because I was like, I can remember all the way back to sixth grade watching cartoons, trying to figure out how to be socially accepted with my kid, with the other kids in kindergarten and then taking on aspects of the different people around me to fit in. I remember making sure that I did the things that my dad wanted me to do so that he wouldn't abuse me because I couldn't measure up to his, uh, his standards as a man. Mm, interesting. So, I, yeah. So go ahead. do you think that, and maybe you already know, so maybe it's not a thought, maybe you have facts, but do you think that um, ADHD is hereditary? It is. We know it is. Okay. Gene- there's genetic markers that we know that um, can be seen uh, along a, di- a large number of different things that they've been able to see here and say, okay, bam, bam, bam. All right. If you have these genetic markers, there's a high likelihood that you're going to have ADHD. Okay. We also know it because if a child has ADHD, there's a 60% likelihood that one of their parents has it. Mm-hmm. There's a 40% likelihood that both of their parents have it. Oh, interesting. We also know that there's a connection between ADHD and autism, even though they're separate things. Mm-hmm. If you have ADHD, you're 40% more likely to have autism. If you have autism, you're 25% more likely to have ADHD as a, as a comorbidity, as a combination of the two. I actually have both. So I'm, I'm, I'm ADHD slash autistic. So and now- Sorry. Now, if you look back, do you see the signs in maybe one or both of your parents and they didn't know it? My dad. Mm. I'm fairly certain he was ADHD. He did. He did a large number. Like My life mirrors my dad's in a lot of different ways, except alcoholism and addiction and abusiveness. But okay, rephrase on that. I was abusive to my first my first two kids in my first relationship. I was emotionally abusive. Mm hmm. And I spanked them. My bar was, I'm not an alcoholic. And I'm not doing these things in anger. But they need discipline. Mm, And as long as I'm I'm not beating them like my dad did me, then I'm at least being better than him. I see. And as I got older. That is common. That is common. Yeah. And as I got older and I started learning about a ADHD, but I also started learning about parenting, I saw all the ways I failed my first two kids. Because here's the thing. We know that my son has ADHD. My oldest son had ADHD. Kids with ADHD feel things more. Mm-hmm. They're more emotionally uh, 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 connected because our emotions are one of the centers where the ADHD affects the most. Emotional dysregulation is a serious issue for us. We have you know, rejection sensitivity dysphoria. We have a higher likelihood of PTSD. We have a higher likelihood of complex PTSD. And so here's the thing, neurodevelopment, right? Going back to that, a child who is spanked by their parent who has ADHD doesn't know why they're being spanked. Even if you tell them, because by the time you tell them and you hit them, they don't remember what they did wrong. And if oh. you try to tell them after the fact, they're too traumatized by the fact that the 
person that they're supposed to trust the most just hit them. Now fear sets in. I can't let this person, I can't fail this person again. They will hit me. They will harm me. And if a parent keeps doing that, we start to develop complex PTSD. Wow. See, now that is something I didn't know. And I'm willing to bet that a lot of people listening right now had no idea about that. Excuse me. They're also big mad at me right now because they're feeling a lot of shame and guilt and frustration and like, this guy's full of shit. Okay, I'm not full of shit. I'm telling y'all exactly how it is. The thing is, is you should not be ashamed of doing what you thought you were doing the best you could at. Right. Right. Here's the thing. If you don't know and you're not maliciously ignoring this science out there, then you should feel bad. Yes. But learn from it Mm -hmm. and start trying to be better. Right. This is why parenting is is a big part of my coaching thing is because, again, kids with ADHD, autism, they do not understand from age zero to 10 why you're hitting them. Right. Right. They don't get it. They're not developmentally set up for that. And if they have emotional dysregulation, which most of us with ADHD and autism do, then what you're doing is damaging them further. And now you're causing trauma. And trauma lasts us for a lifetime. Right. And then you spend the next half of your life trying to get over the trauma. <laughs> but we have so, we have gone, I guess, so far I classical field. ADHD, because mm-hmm. we have gone all over the place. Because <laughs> originally we were starting with relationships. We we're going to talk about ethical non-monogamy. And we have, and we've gone even further. So I, I've learned a lot today. Um, and I'm really hoping that everybody listening has learned a lot today. And it has so been my pleasure having you on the show because this, I mean, has been really informative and I think it's great for, you know, people to actually hear about ethical non-monogamy and know that if that's what you choose, it's okay. And, you know, and whomever you're choosing, make sure it's okay with them. And if you're neurodivergent, that's okay because it is who you are, you know? So I think if I were going to wrap all this up in a theme, it would be, it's okay. (laughs) Absolutely. So thank you so much for being with us. And, you know, this has been an amazing conversation. I've really enjoyed it. Yeah, definitely. I had a lot of fun. You're a great host. I really appreciate it. Well, thank you so much. And I'll talk to you later.